0: Hello and welcome to GlitchCube, we're a gaming podcast and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. As always, I'm Christian. I'm Chris. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us once again as we dive further into the world of games. And this week we are going to be talking about puzzle games. Uh, More specifically, a little bit later in the episode and probably for most of the episode, (laughs) one of the top selling puzzle games of all time. And that, of course, is Tetris. Tetris is a power- powerhouse when it comes to video games. For the longest time, it held the title of like most copies sold of any other video game out there. It's one of, I believe, three games that has the title of selling over 100 million copies. Uh, what, you know, the ones next to it are GTA Five and Minecraft. Go figure. <laughs> but GTA Five is surprising. That one kind of threw me off. But Minecraft is not surprised at all. Honestly, uh, but puzzle games are fascinating. It's really interesting to be looking into them because there's, I, mean, it, I feel like that's the gateway drug to video games. Uh, it's really takes no explanation. It takes no outside references from other games or anything like that in order to be good at a puzzle game or, or to get immersed in them. And it, they're just fun. I mean, who doesn't like a puzzle? Puzzles have been around for years. Uh, and actually, the very first puzzle was made in 1767 by a map maker. He cut up uh, different areas and different territories on a map and out of wood and had people reconstruct it. And, you know, so basically the very first jigsaw puzzle. It's pretty interesting. But it, there's something about a puzzle that just kind of piques our curiosity as human beings. We like to solve problems. We like to see patterns and find the way that things just kind of fit and figure out the world around us and it just gives us a sense of uh peace i would say right being able to look at a world or a video game and figure out the rules and everything adheres to those rules very strictly i mean that's the main mechanic of puzzle games whenever you start bending them then where's your puzzle right it's like trying to shove a jigsaw piece in wrong it just doesn't work right like this has to go here so there's something comforting about that which is actually very interesting but I don't know I I played the hell out of Tetris growing up I love puzzle games through and through and even it's funny to see that while there is an entire genre for puzzle games how much puzzles have integrated their way into every other genre out there. Like when you look at JRPGs, like I can, I always remember the, in Final Fantasy X, right? The the orb puzzles in order to get the Eidolons through the shrines. That was, uh, some of those got a little bit annoying, honestly. Uh, But then you have like God of War, which had really interesting puzzles throughout its entire gameplay. And it's a very action heavy game, but it took time to slow down the player and engage them in a different way which I think is really smart as far as the ebb and flow goes, keeps people engaged a little bit longer, uh, gives them a different type of challenge to think of. So it's not just hack and slash the whole time. So it, puzzles can be used really interestingly. And there's some ingenious design out there. I mean, look at Baba is you, right? Like that's such a clever design for a game. And it, it, it's, it's amazing what you can do with such a quote unquote, simple genre, right? And I, I'm excited. I'm always excited to see the next puzzle game or the next take on a take three or, uh, you know,
1: evolution.
0: The, yeah, yeah. Like what was that? Um, chef brigade or what was that? The, the cooking one.
1: Oh, battle chef brigade. Yeah.
0: Battle chef brigade. That game was rad. <laughs> that was so much fun. And it was a really interesting way of using the like combine three together, right? Where you rotate your blocks and, and they call that stirring. You're stirring in the pot. And you rotate them based on, and then try and match up the colors and get the biggest crystal, right? Like the most combos in a way to make your food delicious. And it it is really cool to kind of see how you can take the same concept, the same idea, and multiply it a million different ways. So there's a lot of really good stuff out there for sure.
1: I like to think back about how, uh, when I was first getting into games as a kid and I mean, granted, there wasn't a whole lot of variety, uh, in the early nineties, mid nineties. And for me, it was always either a platformer or a puzzle game. And I mean, obviously Tetris was kind of the first one. Cause I remember playing on the NES and then playing on the Game Boy. And I think the Game Boy is where I ended up Falling in love with puzzle games, cause there were so many on
0: there, um, and if you owned a game boy, you owned Tetris, right, so oh,
1: yeah, that's right, yep, yeah, and puzzle games have always been something I've enjoyed. I feel like over the years, there have been times where I've just kind of been not sick of them, but I feel like at one point we really saw like a influx of copycats uh, mm-hmm. whenever there's one big puzzle game there's gonna be 10 puzzle games that take that same idea and barely change anything but you know in recent years we've had some really good ones come out you know like you said baba is you you know you look at Talos principle how portal mm-hmm. you know yeah. is considered a puzzle game like it there's so many different kinds of puzzle games that it's really interesting to look at and kind of break it down to like, okay, what kind of puzzle game do I enjoy? Um, this is my question to you. Do you enjoy logic puzzle games more or physics-based puzzle games?
0: Ooh, that's tough. Actually, uh, I would have to say logic-based, to be honest. Hmm. So the physics-based puzzles are fun, but I always feel like the game gets in the way sometimes. Right. right. Where it's just, oh, I didn't place that 100% right. Or the movement is weird or, you know, or getting like locked out from a pathway because something's just not right. Or, you know, like that that can get incredibly frustrating. Whereas mm-hmm. like with a logic based one, the rules are very concrete and obvious and it's right. just you trying to get through it. Right. It's like, um, the, what was that game that I've been wanting to play for a while? Urbora's King, right? It's it's like mm. playing chess, but that game, for instance, takes chess and makes it, or kind of spins it a little bit. It's a roguelike chess game, but a lot of the pieces move very differently than what you would think a chess game can do. And you can get some really interesting combos, put you in interesting situations, but the rules never change. The rules are very set in stone. And you can see your loss 10 moves ahead if you're not doing things correctly, right? Like, so I, I, that's why I feel like uh, logic-based games are probably more my thing. I mean, I do love a physics-based puzzle. It is fun. But I, I feel like the engine sometimes really gets in the way, for sure. But yeah, what I about agree. you? Yeah.
1: I I didn't think about that, how a game can work against you sometimes. There have been definitely times in some games where I'm just like, really? Like that should have worked, but for some reason the way that one piece fell, it didn't. You know, like you look at like Bridge Constructor and yeah. some of the other ones that are really heavy with that physics, and it's like
0: like the World of I, Dew. <laughs> You. You know, so everyone was talked
1: about. Then I still have not played it, and I feel like I owe it to myself to play because I know that's like one of the early indie
0: games that it's a fantastic game. But if one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. <laughs> like you can have a whole bridge fall because you put one thing like kind of off to the wrong side a little bit right like but Mm -hmm. the the physics does seem pretty good you know like i've done it too where i've built towers straight up and then put a little weight on one side to make a bridge that just falls down just for the fun of it right so it it is very interesting the way that the mechanics work there
1: and i think as the years go by a lot of these engines and games that people make the physics gets a lot better and more realistic and i know during that mid 2000s when you know it became more important to have good physics in your game it it was apparent when a game didn't have great physics especially if it was a puzzle game where you kind of expected it Mm -hmm. but i mean we're at the point now where things are so advanced it's like a lot of these kind of physics-based puzzles in games in general have gotten so good that it's like I feel like I don't get cheated out of cheated by the engine as much as I used to but mm. I feel like deep down like I do enjoy a good logic puzzle. Like yeah. it it makes me feel good about myself if I get it right and that that's nice which is like with like uh um, physics it's like a chance so it's like it's exciting but I also i'm like oh, well i don't really feel that smart i just feel lucky but um
0: yeah there's that like space game that just came out too the cosmonaut game i can't remember what it was but there's a lot of like awkward flailing and physics based in it right and mm. a lot of times you could just fling something and the game will just kind of like vacuum suck it into the right place <laughs> and you're like cool i got lucky right? Like (laughs) it's maybe it might not even be skill. You're just flailing endlessly. You can't go anywhere because can't swim in space properly or can't control your limbs. You know, it's one of those where you have to control each limb separately and Mm, you just, you get lucky sometimes. Right. So I feel like that when I think physics based like puzzle games, my mind goes there because there's so many now that are like that, like Octodad and everything. Right. Like, so it, I, I don't know. There's just something about it where it, it just feels luck based. Where it like, but you said the, the like the logic based ones, you really feel like you you did this, you accomplished it, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it feels good for sure. All right. Well, I think it might be time to dive into the big game, right? The the and the reason why we we kind of thought about talking about Tetris at, at all, honestly, is because of the show that's coming out. And it's very interesting that they decided to make an entire show about Tetris. But when you really dive into the history behind it, it is pretty fascinating how Tetris came about, how many plates were spinning and how many under the table deals were made and misinformation and so many different copies of stuff that ended up being illegal. this. It's a very interesting story for sure. And there, there's just so much to it. But I think the big part about this is the timing in which Tetris came out. So Tetris came or was invented in 1984. Now, this is towards the end of the Cold War. So Russia is not doing so hot, right? There's a lot of distrust in the government, and there's a lot of stuff that, like, just I think the price of oil like dipped like drastically. there it, there's a lot of dissent within the the communities themselves. And there's a lot of distrust with the government as far as, you know, creating um, like put it this way, right? In America, video games were starting to flourish and become like a major part of the world. everywhere else, honestly, in Russia, there were no game companies. That wasn't a thing. Like you didn't make video games there. Everything was very. <laughs> you're getting a job to benefit the government in some way and that's it right like this is for the motherland and that's everything there but they like everyone still needs an outlet and i think that's what's amazing about this is that tetris and a lot of other video games that were made in russia were made as a way to blow off steam after work which i think is pretty fascinating but the person who made uh Tetris was Alexei Pajanov, right? That's how you say it, Pejinov. Mm-hmm. Yeah. he's He was a fan of board games, puzzle games, his whole life, a lot of math puzzles uh, and actually his favorite game was a game called Pentominos. Uh Pentominos, for those of you who don't know, is basically you have a rectangular box and you have to put the pieces into the box and they resemble Tetris pieces actually, which is pretty interesting. Uh, in the correct way in order to fill out that rectangular box without any pieces left, no gaps or anything like that, right? So that's one of the games that he really enjoyed a lot. And he also was incredibly fascinated with space. So he ended up getting a degree uh, from the Moscow Institute of Aviation uh, where he earned his Master's in Applied Mathematics. And then he ended up getting a job... um, working as a, you know, engineer with his master's degree, of course. Uh, But the, the working conditions were pretty, I would say not great. (laughs) Like he had a very crowded work environment. There was three to a desk, which I think is kind of insane. Uh, And the hours that he worked were pretty bizarre, but he always said that he was a happy guy. He loved his job. He loved what he was doing uh, but he would work from 10 a.m. to midnight every single day, right? Like, that's a long, Mm-mm. like, you love your job, right? Okay, sure. Uh, but apparently, they didn't actually work the whole time. So when the the lab got shut down, him and a lot of his engineering friends would hang around and use the supercomputers because they didn't have access to the computers at home. Uh, so they would hang out at work so they can, you know, make games, try out new things, and just see what they can do. So one of the things that uh, Pajanov did was he actually remade Pentominos in, or on the PC, which is pretty cool. Uh, but quickly he realized this is not that fun for a lot of people because once you find the solution, that's kind of it, right? Like, you, you all know those little... Um, like little uh, handheld puzzle games, right? Like the bent nails and stuff like that. Once you figure out the trick, it's kind of, it loses its magic and you solve the puzzle and you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. That's Pentominoes, right? Once you figure out the the right placement of it, then that's kind of the whole game. So mm-hmm. he wanted to figure out a way to make Pentominoes more interesting. And so he actually made it where you couldn't select the pieces falling. He had them falling from, or you couldn't select the pieces put in the box. He had them actually falling from a vertical height, so similar to how we see Tetris nowadays. And then he started instead of it just filling up the space because he noticed a lot of gaps and things like that due to the randomness of the shapes. That's whenever he added in, if you make a full line, that line gets removed so that you can try and remove the spare or like the empty spaces in between the blocks. So this is his very first like version of Tetris. Uh, and he actually, the name Tetris is interesting. It's actually a mixture between Tetra and Tennis. Tennis is his favorite game in the world, apparently. So he wanted to really showcase that. But Tetra, if you look at the Tetris pieces, they're made out of four blocks, right? So four little squares. Whereas Pentominos was actually made out of shapes that used five blocks. So he simplified the shapes to make it easier for the computer to render them. And that's why we have these famous four shape configurations or four square configurations. So that's where everything comes about. But I just really love the fact that he just made this on his spare time. And I really think it's great that he made it under the government's eyes, <laughs> like especially during this time with the government being so or the Russian government being so watchful of absolutely everything that everyone is doing, where they're just doing random raids and shakedowns of people uh, and just all this stuff. And here they are in an aviation lab working on AI and speech recognition like that was his field of study or his field of expertise. And then once they clock out, they keep hanging out at work and they make video games and share it with one another. Like how, I think that's a really interesting story, the way that it gets started for sure. I mean, it's not something that you would expect every day, but I don't know. Like I would certainly try and use those resources available to me. I feel like I'm doing that already at work, but I mean, wouldn't you, right? hmm
1: It's I mean, very like rebellious and a very, in a way, though, doesn't seem like it would be rebellious almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like subtle rebellion. <laughs> it's like I'm going against my motherland, but I'm not really doing anything. I'm making a video game. Come on. Right. <laughs> it's not like you're really rebelling against anything. But there, this is where the first little weird kind of hiccup comes into play. Right. So, since Tetris was actually made using government property it is technically the property of the government. It is not Pejanov's game. It is the Russian government's game because he used their resources to make it. Hmm. So that's why he, in the early days, he never tried to distribute it, The or at least for money, he did distribute it to quite a few people, actually. Uh, and he sent it around all over Russia to friends, colleagues, and those friends sent it to their friends. And like this game started to spread like wildfire. And eventually it ended up in the hands of a clinical psychologist. Uh, His name was uh, Pokilko? Yeah, Pokilko, sorry. Uh, And he actually distributed it to his employees. After he played it, he realized, oh, this is actually really fun. Uh, And this game was really deceptive, right? So like, we know what Tetris looks like, but back then the graphics were even more simple right like it really was nothing to it but there's something addicting about this game so he this psychologist passed it around his to his fellow employees but then he started to realize something very interesting and that's that nobody was getting any work done everyone was just playing tetris everyone was hooked they were sold on this like they didn't want to do anything else so what did pokilko do He took every single copy of Tetris and destroyed them because he wanted people to actually get back to work, (laughs) which I think is really funny. Uh, But it did end up making its way back into the psychologist lab uh, through somebody else. They got a copy from someone and passed it back around to the employees. So like this thing's not going to die, right? (laughs) It's just going to stick around. So he decided to spin it and they ended up studying addiction using Tetris which was pretty interesting. And they actually asked uh, uh, Pechenov to make a two-player version of Tetris specifically for their lab so that they can actually study addiction between uh, and using two different people at the same time, right? to see if there's different types of personality, different sexes, things like that, would react differently to an addictive game like Tetris, which I think is pretty interesting. So there, there's a lot of buzz around this game. A lot of people are really, really enjoying it, but it's still just free. It's not anything major, but whenever people play it, they get it. They really love it. And what's funny about this, it, it's so interesting, I think, and I'm curious of what you, you might think about this, where nowadays when we see game trailers or anything like that, it, it's always so over the top. Where they're Mm -hmm. actually like putting in 3D renderings that have nothing to do with the game. It doesn't follow the game's graphics at all. It might not look like anything like what you're going to end up playing, but they're using it to sell what they have in front of them. Whereas with Tetris, it was, they didn't really have anything like that. And you can't really overplay what you're going to be getting into, but it was more of a, you know, here, try it out. And then you just can't stop playing it. I, like, I don't think I've ever met anyone that is like, I hate Tetris. It's, it's just, I don't think that exists. So it, I'm wondering is, should we kind of take back what Tetris was doing and just show off the raw game? If your game is fun, let that shine, right? Like, I'm wondering if maybe we should start thinking about that more instead of just making the next big flashy trailer for something.
1: For me, I feel like Tetris, like, Deep down, it's almost a perfect game, right? Yeah. It's easy to understand, like anybody could play it I'm, i mean, even my dad played it, my mom played it like majority of people I've met have played it, or at least understand how to play it um you know it's it's super simple and makes sense, like it To me, it's a game that anybody could pick up. If they don't even know how to play a video game, I feel like it's something they can learn within five minutes. You know, because literally you're just it's very minimal button pressing. And it it's addicting, right? And, you know, I was thinking, like, uh so there's this... um uh, game hall of fame uh, done by the strong museum and tetris was one of the first games inducted into that hall of fame you know and like Makes i look sense. at it that year and it was pong pac-man super mario brothers world of warcraft doom and tetris which you know you you look at that and it's like that's a pretty damn solid list right there of like what you could consider, like, perfect of those types. Mm -hmm. But with Tetris, to me, it it does something that no other game really can do, and it's just the simplicity. And uh, that's something I really respect it for. Like, I never, growing up, I never really had this, like, affinity to it. I always enjoyed playing it, but I never looked at it from the point of view where it's like, damn anybody could really pick this up
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh it's it's wild to think about i mean to think that it was the highest selling game for decades right like up until just a few years ago like it's crazy because i mean one you're like well where's everyone buying tetris you know i know tetris effect exists and it's very cool playing that in vr like it's definitely a trip but when you compare it to a lot of other games that have sold a lot of copies, I'm just like, Tetris is still outsold Wii Sports? Like, you're crazy, you know? But it makes sense. I mean, anybody could play it.
0: Yeah, it really is the game for any person, for anyone. Mm-hmm. And that that is actually a very important note, and we'll get to that at the end of this little spiel here. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is actually a major, major selling point, and why I think Tetris honestly is as big as it is right now. Uh, it was—it's like final seal on all of these random contracts that end up popping up right now and all that stuff. But there, there's something that comes of the whole idea of Tetris is for everyone, right? So it's a very interesting concept there, and a really great selling point, and to a company that we all know and. You know, love and love-hate-ish, right? <laughs> it's a company that's been around for a very long time, but they they knew what they were doing whenever they boxed Tetris, for sure. But at this point in time, Tetris was still just distributed amongst engineers and scientists uh, just randomly. It was just burned copies after burned copies going around all over the place. And eventually it ends up at the S.C.K.I. Institute of Science, uh, of computer science uh, in Budapest, Hungary. Now, Budapest, Hungary is a very interesting area right now, right? It's the closest that Russia can get to Western culture, right? It's it's a, it's a neighbor, but it's since they're not you know really dealing with America still because of the Cold War. This is kind of the closest thing that they can get. And Hungary is actually known for another really famous puzzle out there. It's the Rubik's cube. The Rubik's Cube was actually invented in Hungary as well. So there's a lot there. Now it's kind of interesting that Tetris and the Rubik's Cube both have like their homes there. I thought that was kind of a nice little touch. Uh, but in that institute, it was actually ported to the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. Uh, because actually while Russia was still, like during the space race and everything like that, they still had like... L- last season's technology <laughs> they, like uh, Pajanov wasn't using a Commodore an Apple II in order to make his or in order to do his job. They were I forgot what PC they were using, but it was not as as complex as the Commodore or the Apple II. So people are starting to port it over to these more advanced uh, or advanced software. And that's where Robert Stein comes into play. So Robert Stein is an incredibly important character in the life of Tetris. Uh, He's the one that tries to acquire the licensing deals for Tetris uh, and ends up trying to sell the rights to Tetris to multiple companies at the same exact time and creating a huge mess. So while, yes, he helped pave the way for Tetris to become a household name, he also made it incredibly confusing for every single person involved. (laughs) <laughs> like <it was> incredibly <laughs> difficult to kind of keep track of uh, but he was the owner of Andromeda Software and he actually licensed out software and games he would travel around looking for the next hot game and he would you know pay for licensing fees so that he can port them to the PC or the home consoles or things like that or arcades right so that was his job his thing so he ended up seeing Tetris one day and he, he loved it. He was walking past someone's desk. They happened to be playing it. He asked them, what is this stuff? And he watches it for a few minutes and is like, I need to find the person who made this. So he actually gets in contact with um, Pechenov, uh through te- er, fax. Not text. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so he sends him a fax asking for the licensing rights to Tetris and through some back and forth because obviously the russian government got a little bit involved right you're sending faxes to a government facility they're going to oversee some stuff um and through some translations so that stein can actually read the russian that Pajanov was reading or writing uh, there was a little bit of miscommunication where from stein's point of view he had a deal with Pajanov. he had a, a, a unsigned but verbal agreement that Stein can have the licensing rights to Tetris. Whereas Pajanov basically just said, That sounds great. Let's have a conversation about it. Right. So there's some, there's a lot of miscommunication there. But Stein takes this and he runs with it. And he actually goes to a couple different um, companies right off the bat. He goes to MirrorSoft and Holobyte, who are two really big companies uh, during this time. And he tries to sell them the game of Tetris. Uh, I believe one it's for like different uh, consoles or PCs, right? So like one gets the rights to the PCs, one gets the rights to arcade. Like that's kind of how they parse out the licensing itself. So it's not just to the title of Tetris; it's to the rights of like PCs in North America and PCs in Japan, or consoles mm-hmm. in North America or consoles in Japan. So you can see how this can get really muddy as far as that goes. So he sells them these rights to start making the game without actually sealing the deal with Pajinov. And obviously that is a major problem because Stein is paid, but there is no actual deal. So there's a lot of things going on. And even though there is no clear concrete deal, Mirosoft and Holobyte Make their versions of Tetris, like they they actually create them, and they start distributing them, even though no deal has ever been made, which is just like come on, <laughs> like it it's it's kind of ridiculous, right? So what ends up happening is uh, this company called lorg it's a random Russian company that kind of takes over. Uh, all proceedings of Tetris going forward. They find out that Stein had gone through with a bunch of deals selling the rights to Tetris whenever he didn't actually own them. And in 1988, he was sent a message saying that he acquired it illegally, and he needs to basically cease all business when it comes to Tetris. And now all communication needs to go through Ellawork. They are the ones that will be making the deal. Because they found out Pajanov was in communications with him, and they got pretty pissed. They basically thought he was hiding something from the Russian government, right? And the Russian government owned the rights to Tetris. Pajanov did not. But when they looked at all the contracts, or quote-unquote contracts, they are really just faxes going back and forth, there was no actual deal signed ever. But yet Tetris was being distributed. So that's where it gets really, really crazy. But... Despite that Tetris is out in the world now. It's it's and it's actually getting raving reviews. And it's actually pretty funny that there were some conspiracy theorists out there that uh, believed that Tetris was designed by the Russians to make Americans uh, less efficient at their jobs and to distract them from things. <laughs> so because Tetris was so addicting, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. That, but you know, this is still during the whole big deal with like the Cold War and everything like that. So, it, it, I guess it kind of makes sense. But throughout all this, um, one day uh, Tetris is being showed off at a roadshow, and this is where Bulletproof Software comes into play, or Hank Rogers. And for those of you who listened to our RPG episode recently. Uh, Hank Rogers is the designer of the quote unquote first JRPG, right? It's uh the Black Onyx. And uh he is a part or he made bulletproof software and he's working with uh Nintendo directly, and he finds Tetris and he tries to figure out how are we going to make this a deal or like how are we gonna make this thing happen? They want it, right? They want it for the consoles, but at that time, when Nintendo reached out to try and acquire it, apparently the rights to consoles had already been sold to Atari. So there was already in a deal with Elorg without anyone knowing that Atari had acquired the rights to Tetris for the consoles. So this is pretty interesting. But Rogers, Hank Rogers, still didn't want to give up on Tetris. He still wanted to figure out how to get it, how to acquire it. And so he took it to the head of Nintendo and actually the head of Nintendo reached out to one of his best designers at the time, a name that we probably all know, Miyamoto, and showed him Tetris to get his opinion on it. And Miyamoto said, it's a good game. And that's it. But that was enough. (laughs) That was enough to really make Nintendo want this game. So they actually went behind Atari's back. And made a deal with Lorg for the console rights to Tetris. And I forgot, it was a, a ridiculous amount of money that they spent, like an exorbitant amount of money for the rights <laughs> to this thing. I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head. But the entire time, Stein's still like kind of doing some shady deals. There's still a lot of miscommunication and all this stuff, but with Nintendo, just kind of going behind the scenes and talking to lorg directly and acquiring the rights, they basically end all arguments. they own it, right, and there is no dispute that they own it anymore because they're like the original contracts and the way things were written up, everything was really kind of confusing and a little weird and a little vague. So one of the licensing agreements had mentioned something along the lines of. Uh, They own the rights to it being on like the Commodore 64, the Apple II, and other computing systems. But computing systems can be pretty much anything. It can be a game system, a computer, whatever it may be. Now, with the deal with Nintendo, what a computing system actually boils down to was very, very well detailed. It was actually a computer, not a console. So, that whole agreement that they had beforehand, which Stein was kind of using as a way to work around to try and sell the rights to the consoles to these other companies, just got, you know, the rug pulled out right from underneath him on that one. So now Nintendo owns the rights to this game, 100% on the consoles. They have it. And so around this time, the Game Boy is going to be coming out. And this is what I mentioned before that, you know, Tetris is for everybody. Well. One of the big things is that the game that was originally supposed to come out with Nintendo's Game Boy, uh, because they always package a game with them, was Mm -hmm. Super Mario Brothers, right? That was Mm going to be the game. It makes sense. It's Nintendo's property. But Hank Rogers went to the president of Nintendo at the time and said, look, if you put Super Mario Brothers with the Game Boy, only little boys are going to play your console. (laughs) But if you put Tetris with the Game Boy, everyone is going to play your console. Everyone's going to want a Game Boy. And he was right. (laughs) Like it sold so many copies and now it's known as one of the top selling games of all time. Like it's pretty crazy how many different hands were involved with this game and just how many different countries and how many different like weird contracts that I'm actually very excited to see the show and see how they kind of explain things and show it off. Cause there's a lot more drama behind the scenes than I really imagined. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Like I, I've seen some documentaries on it and stuff, but I'm curious how the show is gonna portray some of this not backstabbing but drama to it because i feel like in a documentary you can't really sense that kind of urgency whereas like with this show obviously they'll turn the dial on the drama up to 11 but
0: oh yeah a bunch you know, of we'll, sweaty guys uh yelling at phones cigarette smoke in the background
1: <laughs> he'll just hear them, give me my tetris yeah, yeah. it's uh it's interesting, and something you know going back to Atari and nintendo um this is obviously once you know Tetris on the n e s so atari after i think it was eighty four kind of when you know the, the Atari was going downhill um there was two companies there was Atari Corporation, which mostly handled the computer and console games and hardware um and there was another so basically if Atari wanted to make games on another platform, they had to come up with a different name. Mm-hmm. Uh and they created the name Tengen. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Basically the game cartridges on the NES looked totally different. They were like these weird black, like kind of concave shape uh at the end, uh and they were just Really different. Uh, Almost, you could almost think they were like kind of like bootlegs to an extent because some of them were very rough reworks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason why they did this was because back on the NES, Nintendo had a very strict policy on how many games a company could produce for the NES. I think it was two.
0: Oh, that's Uh, interesting.
1: Oh, it was only five games per year mandated. that Nintendo could only be the ones that manufacture the cartridge. Uh, and they had to be NES exclusive for two years, but yeah, there was, I think there was also a limit. Um, that's why there was this other brand. It's not super. It, there was another, if you see the logo on an NES cartridge, you'd be like, oh yeah, they, they had a lot of games. Um, and they were also a knockoff brand so when you look back at the NES a lot of companies had two companies to get around that Nintendo restriction Hmm. you know Nintendo was very serious about that quality seal of approval which look at games nowadays right you look at Steam and you got like 10 new bondage and waifu dating games right. every hour. Whereas back then, you know, it was very strict. And yes, there were not so great games back then too, but it it just worked back then, right? There was a very limited library. So, I mean, even a quote-unquote bad game would still be a game to play.
0: Because there wasn't more- that much, yeah.
1: Yeah, you couldn't be like, oh, well, this game sucks, you know? But it's like, so back then they were very strict. Um, so Tengen originally went to Nintendo and was like, hey, can we put a little less restriction on it? And Nintendo said no. Um, well, Atari said that, right? And that's mm-hmm. why they created Tengen. And Tengen did a lot of, like, they did the Gauntlet version, they did Pac-Man, but their Tetris was interesting and different. Obviously it was the same core game but there were some differences. Uh the audio files, the music obviously didn't sound as good. Very grainy, very not so great sounds for chiptune. Mm-hmm. But the biggest draw uh that actually people preferred about this version is that it actually had a two player mode. Mm. Which the original NES Tetris did not have. It only had a single player. So it's kind of interesting that this, like, you know, one off game had a mode that the original didn't have. And I actually didn't know that until not too long ago when I was kind of looking into what Tengen was because I remember seeing a cartridge and being like, oh, this looks kind of weird. But yeah there's there's a huge history on Tengen for anyone out there interested in it like there's a lot of info out there too but it's actually really fascinating if you dive into their battles with Nintendo their legal battles and also like it just really shows like how restrictive Nintendo was Mm -hmm. I think they were like that even kind of up into the Super Nintendo and then they kind of lessened it which is Kind of where you started. seeing the library is getting bigger and bigger because uh, they allowed more games to get released. Right. But yeah, it was it was kind of fascinating seeing Atari do that, right? Because I mean, think about it. Like Nintendo was one of the nails in the coffin for Atari. So it was interesting seeing it from that point. But yeah, I mean, there's a whole you could really question Nintendo's uh take on tetris but i might get into that in a little bit with its sequels
0: oh yeah actually if you want to dive into that now why not sure
1: so the thing with uh you know when you think about tetris right how how can you improve on it right like it it has all you need right match Mm -hmm. the blocks fill the space done you don't need to do anything more to it um so going over Petronov's stuff, he after Tetris he created a few other games, actually quite a couple, but staying in that generation of console and computer, uh, he had Weltris, he had faces, which is interesting. Uh for people out there that don't know, it's imagine Tetris but with people's faces. Uh, Basically, you're lining blocks up to create faces. It's a very weird concept that, you know, looking at it just (laughs) doesn't look like it works. But it did back then. Uh, He also created Hattress, which I actually didn't know that was a game. Uh, I remember playing a lot of Team Fortress 2 back in the day, and everyone always called the stacking of hats. Tetris. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. I didn't realize there was an actual game where you stack hats. Uh huh. that actually looks kind of fun. Um not as fun as Tetris, but it 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 makes sense. Like it's pretty close. Uh after that, his games kind of went a little different, always kind of staying in the puzzle realm. Uh Wordtress was kind of the take on Scrabble meets Tetris, which is Mm, I don't know. I, I was watching quite a bit of gameplay on it, and I'm like, mm, I don't know if that really works, because I feel like with, te- with Scrabble, it just kind of works, because you see all the letters, and you see your seven letters, and you're like, oh, I can create a word like this, whereas with trist, it's like, here's a letter. Here's a letter, and you have to be, like, on it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, after that, it just kind of mix and match with games. Um, came out with Tetrisphere, which I remember for the N sixty four. It's kind of like Tetris, but on like a globe. Hmm. So it's like this three D circle. Obviously, it's a, a sphere. But was that on really N64? interesting? Te- yeah, yeah, I remember I seeing either. this cover yeah. of Blockbuster. I
0: played it. I forgot about that game. He plays like little robots too. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I was. I always thought it was kind of cool, like I always loved the evolution of Tetris games, which I'll get into in a minute but and then I'll actually you know what let's let's dial it back to the sequel of Tetris before I get into Patno's more recent endeavors but so Nintendo decided to take Tetris in their own hands, and as I was going through these games just now with you know Patno made. He didn't work on Tetris 2. He didn't work on all these other Tetris titles. Actually, after Tetris itself, he never worked Well, Tetrisphere, right? So that one I was talking about, the N64, mm-hmm. that's the only real Tetris game in name that he actually worked on. So every other Tetris you see, he he didn't work on it. Huh. You know, it's just his idea. But so Tetris 2, when Nintendo came out with it, it it changed the game, right? Going back to what I said, like how do you how do you build on a perfect game like Tetris? You add color. Mm. And this is where we start seeing like, oh, like not only are we putting blocks together, but we're kind of matching colors. Uh it I don't think it was the start of the color matching. Um, there were other puzzle games around that time that kind of were working on that more. You know, back in that time frame, there were a couple other games that were trying to taking that Tetris style and doing their own flip on it. Like, you look at Puyo Puyo, which was more adding colors together, creating blocks that way, uh, Then one I'll get into soon with the next Tetris game kind of changes it and I think actually kind of creates that almost match three thing but on the Super Nintendo Tetris Attacks came out and I remember playing this uh, actually quite a bit as a kid and in Japan it was paneled upon and over here basically it was called Puzzle League, which actually was, throughout the years, I don't think, there there hasn't been one since 2016, which was Animal Crossing Puzzle League. But uh, it's always been a Nintendo uh, franchise. I played Pokemon Puzzle League a lot back in the day on the N64 and loved it. And basically, it's kind of like your match three. You're matching colors and symbols, and you do battles that way as well. But it at that point, it, I personally feel it takes everything away from Tetris, right? Like, the color, the symbols, all of that, it doesn't have that same feel of, okay, we need to create, we need to fill this space, right? We can't have an open space and tetris started taking some really weird turns after that and kind of just became totally different games of itself it always had that core like put these blocks together but when you really look at like the places that it went on all these other platforms it it changed um In maybe some good ways, some not so good ways, but it's interesting to see like other people's attempts at trying to revolutionize or evolve the formula. But at least in my opinion, when you look at all these, you know, spiritual successors to it, they just don't feel the same because they're adding all these extra mechanics to it that say you give it to you know your dad who has played a lot of tetris but then you give him say a puzzle league game he's going to have to learn something different and for some people that could be not as easy to get into whereas tetris it's like you look at it you get it and it's not that hard right and that's something i always found interesting with a lot of these later tetris titles that they add all these little mechanics which to me never bothered me because i just you know, I play a lot of games, I understand it, like a lot of us do. But for people that don't play games, it's, that's a pretty big change in a way that it's not as accessible as just playing Tetris. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the evolution of it, right? And you can tell that people are trying to like everyone knows what Tetris is, and a lot, there's a lot of people. There's a lot more gamers out there now, so maybe they feel like they can branch out into more and like kind of game of high Tetris even further by adding these extra mechanics. But like you said, when you do that, you do muddy the waters a bit, right? Like you take away from a quote-unquote perfect game. Like it, it it's Tetris. It, it makes sense. It's clear, concise. Every single person can pick it up and just play it and enjoy it. Now there Not to say that there aren't some interesting titles out there that use Tetris in very creative ways, Uh, but I do think that the most interesting one that I've seen is a recent game. Uh, It's Blocky Dungeon, right? Where it's Tetris meets Dungeon Crawling. So you actually are creating the dungeon by laying down the Tetris blocks, which are actually rooms, but it's all in the shape of the Tetris blocks in order for your guy to get around, collect loot, fight monsters and all that good stuff Uh, but when you do make lines like it it is very different style right like so while yes it is a very interesting thing you are kind of taking away from the core mechanic of Tetris itself so is it fun does it have the longevity that Tetris does I I don't know because with the simplicity behind this game behind the original Tetris you can't really beat that all right, it's it's one you can play for endless hours. It's a no-brainer game, which is nice sometimes. It, 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 there's just something about that you just can't really beat at all. So I, while it is really cool to see some of these new iterations, I you just you can't beat the classic. Can't I be. I feel original.
1: like it. One of the Tetris variants that really stood out to me is something that really. Took the core mechanic and did something different and really cool with it was maybe Tetris 99. Mm, Uh,
0: That is a cool idea.
1: I love that game. Like, I got really into that because it was just, it was fun. It was, you know, your basic Tetris, but you're playing against all these people and it's like frantic and fun and it just, it felt good you know because it's like you're not changing the game at all Mm -hmm. and you're adding this like multiplayer mechanic that just works like you you know think 10 years ago like tetris battle royale like what there's no way but it just it worked so well but yeah it's it's interesting to see like when you look at the huge list of tetris like titles it's crazy how many there are and there's a lot of them that have some interesting mechanics to it but it's crazy to think that all these games have been made based off the original but you know the last big title that patching did and for the xbox users out there microsoft users because it was on other stuff before that was uh hexic which I feel like for me, I remember playing it on MSN uh, because I used to really like MSN Messenger back in the day. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being a game that you could play on. I was always like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's an interesting idea. And, but I never really got into it until it was on the 360, right? The Hexic HD, Hexic 2. And for those that out there that don't know what Hexic is, it's, where you basically have to create flowers in, like, these blocks, right? It's another tile-matching kind of game. But you have to create these flowers. So it's, like, basically you have to make this circular shape of, like, six blocks or tiles uh with one in the middle. And that's kind of how you get your points. And obviously you could chain it and do all that kind of stuff with it. Like, it's a very... It's very interesting and it's very different than Tetris, but at the same time you can still kind of feel that creativeness of Tetris in it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like while it seemed like it did really well, uh which I never knew it did. I always thought it was just a game that was just included with Xbox. I didn't realize like it was actually a big deal at one point. But um yeah, I never knew that he made it. Mm-hmm. Like it's I was kind of surprised.
0: Man, that's actually really cool. All right, well, that's going to do it for us this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our little conversation into the history of Tetris. And it's just amazing to see how far this game has come from it just starting out as something that was made after work. Something to pass the time and to blow off some steam. And now it is a household item it's one of the top-selling games in the world. Uh, it's been mimicked and copied all over for years, decades, right? Imagine that, right? Like, it came out in 1986. So, what is that? 40 years of Tetris so far? That's, that's pretty impressive. It's amazing to see that it's still relevant, still fun, and the gameplay does not get old whatsoever. Just truly amazing stuff. But yeah. Anyway, like I said, that's gonna do it for us this week. We'll talk to you guys next week with some more wonderful games, history of games, art of games, all that good stuff. But until then, uh, bye for now.